Welcome to the Strategy Mob Podcast. Tune in for everything you need to know to stay in the know regarding the automotive industry. Here's your host, Jason Harris. Hey, 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 what's going on, Podcast Nation? It is Jason Harris here, and thank you for joining me on another episode of Strategy with Jason. Today, I have an amazing guest, and we're going to talk about something that just unfortunately doesn't get talked about enough. And usually when we do have to talk about it, it is way too late for us to even have a discussion about it. We're going to talk about dispute. We're talking about resolution or and resolving those disputes. We're going to talk about ad compliancy and just everything a dealer needs to do to ensure that they are protecting their own personal liability. I have the oh-so-famous Mr. Tom Klein with me today. Hey, Tom, what's going on? Hey, Jason. Great to be here. Thanks for having me. I'm so glad we were able to connect, and I'm so glad to actually be able to do this topic because, honestly, I don't think that there's enough content out there about this. And, you know, myself, uh, I was a, a young dealer principal, very fresh and new to it, to the game, you know, about five or six years ago. And there was just a lot of things that I had to learn by fire. It was very much so a baptism by fire. And, you know, if there was just enough content, I think I would have been better prepared. And I still think there's even dealer principals that have been in the business for a long time that have never had to deal with these things. So I'm super excited to have this conversation. But before we get into the depth of our conversation today, I thought we'd start off with an origin story because I'm always so curious to find out how people stumbled their way into our industry. So, so Tom, how did you get started in this crazy little world we call the automotive industry? Thanks, Jason. So uh, my grandfather was in the business and he started his dealership in 1925. In Holy fact, cow, wow. I have something here to show you. I don't know if you remember what this is. Oh my gosh, look at that. Yes, there would have been yes. in every single desk. Yes, there was an ashtray on every desk. Uh, he started in 1925. You can see he was a Chevrolet dealer. Courtesy and fairness was his motto. 13th of Monticello is here in Norfolk, Virginia, which is where I am. That is so cool. You know what I actually love about that is the logo, right? Like in today's standards, you could never, your name could never be larger than the manufacturer's name. But back then, you, you could, it was kind of, you can do whatever you want. Sorry, anyways, go ahead. <laughs> Okay, so he uh, started in 1925. Uh, my father and my uncle joined him after they were out of college. And in 1964, what was then Princess Anne County, an option came up for a dealership there. The population at that time was four to 5,000 in Princess Anne County. And my father had conversation with his brother and his, and his father and said, are you interested in this? And they said, no, we're not interested. Nothing will ever happen down there in that county. That county then became uh, Virginia Beach, which is now the largest <laughs> city uh, in Virginia. And that's where he started RK Chevrolet, which was back in 1964. Wow. And uh, we sold the dealership uh, recently. And I was, so I've been in the business for 30 years. You know, that's so cool. You know, it, it, I find there's so many similar similar stories out there, right? I find people get into the business like one of three ways, right? Either they were born into the business, like like you were. I mean, very generational. Like 1925, man, I can't. I can't 100 imagine. years. Like, I can't, so, yeah, so to yeah, put yeah, that yeah, in context, years. To, to put that in context, how many years is uh, old the United States? How many years is the United States old? 260, 70, whatever it is. So, yeah, yep. 
and my family has been in the car business for a hundred out of those years. So what's that? 30% of the, yeah. of, of the age of the United States, my family has been selling cars. So a long time. <laughs> that, that, that is so cool. I can't imagine just the, the rich history and stories. You know what I mean? Like I think it probably has to be a book written, but we could probably say that for another podcast. Um, <laughs> but, but like I said, I find, I find people either are born into it. They stumble their way into it. My way I was conned into it. Um, but that is, that is just so cool that, you know, for the last hundred years, your entire family has dedicated uh, their professional career to the automotive space. So I'm, I'm so glad to have you on here. I'm so glad to get into this conversation and I got you know, kind of five or six different kind of areas that I want to focus on. But, you know, I think the, the one I want kind of focus on right now uh, being, um, let's go reputation management. Okay. Because I hate to say it, but I think there's a lot of snake oil right now going around as far as what reputation management means. It's almost kind of become like one of those words like conversion, you know, like it has 62 different variations or meanings to it. And, and I don't think necessarily people understand, you know, uh, how it actually impacts the business. So, you know, for you, you know, what is, what is reputation management mean to you? Sure. It's a great question. And it's a great area that I think dealers have to focus on. There are a lot of vendors who will charge you $99 to handle your reputation. Exactly. Uh, and, and that's hard to do. Uh, the important thing that dealers have to do is read their reviews. And I recommend that dealers look at over 36 websites. They don't all have to be looked at on a daily basis, but certainly on a monthly basis. Uh, there are 36 different websites that dealers should pay attention to. Some of the big ones, of course, everybody knows, a Dealer Raider, My Three Cents, Google, Facebook, those kinds of things. But a dealer can learn a lot by reading the comments that customers put up there oh, sure. and use that as a tool in order how to manage his business. He's getting complaints about the service department, really the service department. If he's getting complaints that the sales department takes too long to finish the deal, right? Everybody hears that. Then that's another thing. Uh -huh. uh, if the dealer is hearing things that are going on, or if these comments say things that are going on that really raise the dealer's you know eyebrows, when people say I was defrauded and and I was mistreated and you guys are a bunch of crooks, that's when some finesse is required and involved. And having a process and a procedure or hiring somebody else to do it for you and how to respond, not only how to post and say, but also follow up with the customer. Oh, After sure. you post something, you should pick up the phone call and call the customer. Nine times out of ten, uh, unless uh, the customer is going by, you know, Gladiator124 or something <laughs> as their name, it has their name right on there. And the dealer can go back through the records, get the phone number, pick up the phone, or have one of his managers who has the authority to resolve problems pick up the phone and try to get the customer straightened out or get them in. I always recommend not trying to do it over the telephone, but have them come into the store, sit down, and try to get the problems resolved. You know, I'm, I'm so with you on that. What I, what, I, what I find is there's some training that's required behind this. And, you know, I've had the opportunity to visit thousands of dealerships 
and uh, sit down with many, many of them to deep dive into their operations. And I, I'm with you. Uh, I, I think looking at those reviews, well, even for me, when I was a dealer principal, it, w- it was the pulse of my business. It was right. where operations and clients met and where the clients felt were in a place or a, a, an environment where they felt comfortable, they could say what they wanted to say. And it was good or bad. It didn't really matter. But I had to have a mindset that my willingness to actually just want to to, to acknowledge it, right? Like, I understand, like, this is someone's perception. It's not necessarily the truth. It's their perception. But their perception is their own truth. And I had to be in that mindset to, you know, to really kind of just, I guess, consume and chew on that information. But, um, look, I was, uh, I, I won't lie, I was a little hot-headed in some of the way I would have responded to these. And I, and I thought about this, you know, later on, is that, you know, there's not a whole lot of training out there on how to, you know, um, resolve dispute like that. And, you know, so, so it's like, yes, it's great to have a manager, you know, make that phone call. But if that manager's not trained to properly resolve that, it actually can just make everything even worse. So that's what I want to, that's, that's my question for you. It's like advice for dealers out there that are watching and listening right now. And, you know, they're in that boat where they want to make that phone call. They want to connect with that customer. They want to resolve this, but they don't necessarily have been ever trained on how to, you know, sometimes hostage negotiations, it feels like. <laughs> like so so uh, maybe a few tips on how you uh, have that conversation. Sure. It's, it's a great question. I think the first most important thing is to eliminate a culture of, yeah, but we were right. <laughs> yeah. We, we didn't do anything. We didn't do anything wrong. That's, you have to eliminate that culture because it really doesn't matter. If you don't fix the problem, it's going to get worse. Now, some of them, some dealers say, hey, I'd rather just leave it alone, not spend the money. And if it blows up, it blows up and I'll deal with it. Well, that's that's not what I would advocate. Uh, that's not the right way to do things, in my opinion. The mm-hmm. first, I guess, most important thing is, is to not be defensive. Yes, exactly. It's, it's, it's probably the, the first and most important rule. Overall, don't be defensive. You call the customer. You say, I understand you have a problem. I, I want to be helpful to you. I want to fix the problem. And I don't want you to be upset with us. When can you come in and see me? Mm-hmm. And, and you mentioned hostage negotiations. You can't fix a problem on the phone. Um, you just can't, unless you're Chris Voss. Uh, if you're Chris Voss, you can fix it. You know, he's the hostage negotiator who exactly. teaches negotiations now. But it, it, unless you're him, you can't fix a problem on the phone if you're a car dealer. You've got to have the customer come in. And that part of that is having them invest the time and the energy in order to fix the problem. Because if they can just hang up the phone and say, screw them and I'm not doing that or whatever it may be, they're not invested in the process. You'll never fix it. So having them come in is is the second, I would say, most important step. And then at the first meeting, setting expectations that, hey, I'm not going to resolve everything today. I'm going to listen to you. I'm going to take notes. Um, it's really important. The third most important thing is I would say the customer has to feel like you listened to their problem yes. um, and really understood it uh, because – Unless you listen to the whole story, and you've got to let them tell you the whole story, unless you listen to all that, you really don't understand what they went through, and you don't understand where the potential problems are within your operation, just like you said. 
I actually think that's probably one of the biggest ones. It's just really shut up and listen. You know, um, I think too often, and look, I'm I'm totally guilty of this. Like, I, I gotta admit that I am. Um, my EQ is not overly high sometimes, and I'm very. Uh, I think very logically I process things kind of in, you know, in order. And, you know, when someone's sharing a story with me, I, I, I'm just, I, I, I have to remind myself to shut up uh, because I will literally try to correct every single little element of the story. <laughs> right. You know, but, but it's key though. If you want to get to that place and we were talking about that place where you can actually connect. All right. And, and then get to a place where you can actually resolve something. I think that's one of the biggest ones is that you actually have to be willing to hear them out regardless of your thoughts and opinions of what their perception is. And I think that's, I think that is very important because what I would advocate that you do in the first meeting is you sit down, you say, I want to hear your whole story. Mm -hmm. You hold up a blank pad of paper and you say, I'm going to take notes. I may interrupt you as you tell the story because I want to make sure I understand all that, what you're telling me. And then at the end, after, I've, after you go through your whole story, I'm going to read back what I wrote down, and then you tell me if I left anything out. That's a great process. I like that a lot. And, and the customer feels heard, and so part of the process is you have to extract the venom. You have to get, uh, you know, get all the upset out and get it on the table. Um, as the expression goes, sunshine's the best disinfectant, right? So that's, that's what the first meeting's about. Now. Um, like I said, I mean, taking the time to do this and it is, it is time. This is, this is time, right? Look, <laughs> the two things that we value most in our industry is money and time. And, right. you know, I, I find that the excuse that I get from a fair amount of clients is that we don't have time for that. And I have to kind of push back on this because yet, see, this is one of those time investment uh, parts of our business that doesn't have a 30 day cycle behind it. Right. And you know how much we love our 30-day cycles. Right? Yes, <laughs> yes, we do. From the beginning to the end, the 1st to the 30th or 31st or whatever, you know, this is not one of those. This is that marathon. This is that. This is the long-form run that we have to do to continue our better operations. And, you know, it's, it's one thing to think that your process is the right process. It's one thing to think that you have the right team, but – it's your client that's ultimately going to define if you have the right process, if you have the right team. And you have to have a right. willingness to listen to that. Um, and I think that's so incredibly important. I think those are some great, you know, kind of starting points or, or how you kind of start off the, that conversation with a client. I want to kind of switch into kind of another topic that we were talking about earlier on, uh, off camera. And because I think it's a big one, and at least it's a big one for me because I, I felt this as, as a DP. It's kind of, you know, personal liability around the dealer principal. You know, um, Look, we're, there's a lot of family-owned and operated businesses out there, and I don't necessarily think, or or I don't, well, I know for a fact a lot of dealerships don't necessarily know what the business is liable or how they can even be held liable uh, for certain situations or issues. So I want to kind of, your thoughts or kind of your strategies behind, you know, uh, protecting the personal liability of a dealer principal. Sure. I think it's really two different areas and uh, the personal liability flows from certain laws for example in the united states we've got obviously different laws than you do in canada uh, for example the irs has a rule called um 
the, the form that the dealer has to fill out is form 8300 mm -hmm. and it's the cash reporting form and that cash reporting form has to be filled out properly and it has to be filled out regularly and you have to have a process for it and willful non-compliance can land up uh, with a fine of up to we always love the words up to in our business Yes, we up do. to five and a half million dollars and up to five years of jail time for willful noncompliance. It, it's very serious and it's taken very seriously and the IRS is not kidding. So, so having the policies and procedures in place and training your employees on what to do is of critical importance. So I would say that's one example. Another example is when I go into to do an enterprise risk analysis of a, of a dealership and I kind of look at their operations from top to bottom, one of the first things I do is, is look at all their insurance policies. And when I walk around dealerships, one of the things I noticed m most times is that they have inadequate protection on their oil drums. That's the new and the used oil. Mm -hmm. And I was at a dealership not too long ago, and I said, well, you know, you don't have any, as an example, you don't have any bollards, these big metal bollards around, so that if uh, one of the vehicles uh, that the mechanics were working on lost their brakes and went careening into these oil drums, uh, and they broke that starts leaking into the groundwater, a dealer's personally liable for that in the United States. So having an insurance policy and product that would back them up is very important. Uh, it, it, it protects their personal net worth. These are, the, these are the kinds of things that we go in and look at from the, from the, from the top to the bottom and, and make sure that the dealer principle is covered. It's, look, it's all about being proactive. And, you know, look, we, I have to admit it, you know, in our industry, we are uh, <laughs> we're not the most pro uh, known for being the most proactive, you know, industry. Um, not, to say, not, not to say that there's a lot of dealerships out there that are very good at this. Um, but, you know, the, the, I think for sure, you know, like, look, we sell metal and we service and fix metal. And that is about what we think our, our job responsibilities are. But it goes a lot farther uh, than that, and you know, I, I think there's, um, you know, I I know what you do and what your and, and what your company does it just provides a lot of education around that. And there's just so many little aspects of there. It is, you know, if, if a dealership hasn't at least had a conversation, if from listening to us talk right now, you gotta at least have the conversation around, you know, like are we liable? Do we need to bring somebody in to kind of just double check here and here and make sure that you know we actually have you know, what we need covered, you know, and this kind of, but, you know, sorry, do you hear my kids screaming in the background? No? Okay. No. Virtual, virtual uh, uh, schooling right now. <laughs> We're in a lockdown. I'm just going to wait a second. You know, look, some of these liability issues can go as far as even becoming, you know, kind of a, a criminal conduct issue. And, uh, 
we just had an issue recently up here where a dealership was shut down uh, because of a very similar situation to what you were talking about earlier uh, with the IRS and the cash uh, cash reporting. We have a different agency that monitors that. Uh, but it literally, it was so uh, negligent that it actually became a criminal uh, situation. So I'm, I'm curious, you probably know way more about this than I do. So I'd, I'd love to like, how does it go from just being a liability thing to being just a negligent, you know, criminal situation? So the U.S. government has guidelines that criminal conduct is, they're sentencing guidelines, actually. And one of the sentencing guidelines says, does your business have a compliance management system? Does your business embrace uh, trying to ensure that customers, specifically consumers, customers, are not taken advantage of? Do you have a self-policing mechanism? Or is there an outside third party that comes in and will ensure that your transactions are clean and that you're not uh, payment packing and product stuffing and all the things that dealers are not supposed to do? And most of the dealers do it right, but there are some who don't, and, and that becomes a problem. So the sentencing guidelines say that the judges are supposed to be more lenient with those business owners who have compliance policies and procedures in place. It's, uh, it's scary stuff, Jason. No, it, it is. And it's something that we have to take very serious. And, and, and I love the idea. Again, it's just about being proactive, right? It's just having those mechanisms in place to ensure that we're protecting ourselves. And, you know, and this is not just going into the way we transact. It's, it's the way that we even, you know, uh, protect our paperwork. You know, like I had a dealership right now that just recently got a monstrous fine, all right, for not properly storing documentation over X amount of years. There was a buy-sell that kind of happened, and I just don't think the dealer, the, the new dealer principal wasn't necessarily aware of what some of those uh, those uh, regulations were. And, uh, boy, that's a, it was a six-figure hit. It was a six-figure fine for not properly um, – securely documenting uh, transactions and customer data and information, specifically around financing. I mean, look, we have, we have customer social security numbers. We had all this data that just wasn't done properly, and some of it was actually just accidentally thrown out. Right. Right. Well, I mean, the, the case of Bronx Honda is a good one uh, that's recent. And Bronx Honda was doing all kinds of from what I read, I wasn't there, I don't know personally, but from what I read, they were not transacting business in a proper way. And now, because of their lack of advertising procedures, they, I, I believe they signed a consent order, if my memory serves correctly, for 20 years that the Federal Trade Commission has to approve their advertising for the next 20 years. No, look, we have the exact same thing. I have a dealership that just became a client of ours that right now, because we handle all of their marketing efforts, that you know, for the next five years, I think it is for us, for us for the next five years, I can't run a single ad on any single type of medium out there without having uh, OMVIC is our governing body here uh, that oversees kind of ad compliancy and I can't do anything until they've actually approved it and talk about just a, a giant nightmare with, especially in the automotive industry, because our, our messaging is changing so fast. Sometimes it takes me two weeks just to get a response back from the compliance 
but, right. but so that again, this is all coming up back to being proactive, right? Right. If we want to stay away from dispute, if we want to stay away from liability issues, then it's all about proactive compliancy. So I think there's a couple different categories of, of compliance or uh, proactive compliancy that we can talk about. Let's jam about ad compliancy and, and then we'll kind of take it from there. Sure. Dealers, whether it's through their marketing agency or through their lawyer or through a, a third party like uh, us, someone should check your ads to make sure that they're not deceptive. Uh, they're often very deceptive. My fiance and I were looking at a uh, luxury SUV and this particular article is, it was just recently posted on the internet. And the name of the article is the lollipop one, because when you go in and the ad says that you can get it in this case, it was 687 or 689 a month. And I identified myself as a compliance consultant in the automotive industry. And is this really what you can buy it for? And you get jerked around, you know that they need help. This yes, dealership yes. needs some help. Uh, because I couldn't buy it for the 689. It was like 1,084 of what oh, I could buy the yeah. vehicle for. Uh, and I won't mention the dealership's name or the brand. That's why we'll just call it the Lollipop One. <laughs> And uh, it, it was quite something. Um, and it, and it, that's what it feels like. That's what a customer feels like when, when you bait and switch them. When you say, you know, you can have this lovely vehicle for $325 a month. And then when you come in, you know, the vehicle's not there. It just sold or the last one just walked out the door. and You can't get any for 12 weeks. Or, there, there's a proper way to do it. And, and one place for sure that dealerships get jammed up is the manufacturer's feed that gets forced into their website. Yes. The manufacturers don't care. and well, they're not compliant. Like they're, they're but, number one, but number two, the dealers don't check the manufacturer's ads to see if they are uh, if they're, uh, compliant or not. And, uh, and again, the, the fees and the things that can happen. I know of one dealership as an example. So in the United States, if you're closed, if your dealership's closed more than X number of days, a day or two or three, whatever it is, manufacturer has the right to take your franchise away. Uh, and this particular dealership pissed off a customer. Of course. Cust customer went to a politician. Politician went to whatever the name of that organization is in that state, I guess it's a, mo it's a motor vehicle dealer board of some kind. And the motor vehicle dealer board uh, decided that uh, as a result of jerking this guy around, they should be closed for seven days. Yes. So all of a sudden you've got tens of millions of dollars oh, on the line to upset one customer. Well, and again, it's, it's, I find right now because like, you know, here in Ontario or greater Toronto area where I'm in right now, you know, we have a governing body called OMVIC and I hate to say it, but my experience with OMVIC <laughs> on both the vendor and the dealer side has not always been the best. And in, in, in the sense of, I always kind of expect that governing body to, you know, assist me. Like I want help, you know, look at I don't think I went out there to put an ad out purposely to mislead somebody. 
but if maybe the language we used or the font size we used wasn't enough, you know, like I, I would like to at least to have like an open conversation about it. And, sure. and, and I'm finding that the governing body here, um, not overly great about that, and I'm finding that a lot of the other governing bodies that I talked that I talked to other dealers around the United States and you know, in Canada are the same. So I actually feel that it, it is super important as dealers for us to take on the responsibility to truly understand, you know, our compliance. Because what I find sometimes is the disconnect is simply the the uh, disconnect is between operations and marketing. You know, like right now in a dealership, for a lot of a lot of cases, our operations marketing are like two different silos. And I swear that the way that sometimes they communicate with each other is like Morse code. Like beep, 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 beep. Right. That, that, that's the well, extent of the conversation. The, mar the marketing department hears from the dealer principal and says, I want this ad on the internet before you go home. Exactly. And that's it. And, and they walk out of the office and that's what they want. And so the, that marketing person doesn't have time or inclination or the resources or the knowledge or the understanding or any of that in, 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 trying to get that ad up on the internet that night. And, and you know what it is? It's just like, it's, it's not that we're doing it on purpose. It's just, it, it it's not something that, look, we're, we're here to sell cars. We're here to service cars. And it's just something that we not think of on a regular basis. But I find that, you know, look, if any dealership out there is watching and listening right now and you're utilizing an agency or, or someone internally, then at least once a quarter, you just need to be having a conversation around, you know, the creative message and the compliancy. And also, I mean, look, a lot of things have changed so much in our digital marketing efforts. You know, a lot of these, you know, especially with the new HEC compliancy with Google and Facebook, you know, there are things that we can't necessarily say, or if we do say it requires more information or different, you know, targeting parameters. So like compliancy or especially ad compliancy is, well, it's always been a big deal, but it's going to be a monster deal here moving into 2021, if your agency is not on top of it or if you're using someone internally and they're not on top of it, if, the, if you ask your agency what HEC is and they, they don't know, <laughs> be concerned um, because there's going to be a lot of wasted ad spend, you know, happening. But I, I, like I said, I mean, this calls, yeah, you have the compliancy there with the intent to want to not have to resolve things, you know, with, you know, clients and, you know, the dispute and, and any disputes there. Um I think when that let me does happen, one, yeah, interrupt for one second, Jason. I think what's I think what's important when you meet with a regulator, and I've met with all kinds of regulators from yes. the Secret Service to the IRS to the uh, um, Postal Inspector, the Department of uh, Housing and Urban Development has their own police departments. I mean, it's incredible how many uh, regulators there are. And I think the regulators, and I can speak from my experience, is that they they want to if they see you trying to comply, they're going to handle things one way. Exactly. If they see that you're flippant and you just don't care, they're certainly going to handle things a different way. You know what, though, um, that's true in some cases, but I find like it's up to us. It's our ultimate responsibility. You know, that we're right. the ones that are being proactive about it, right? Because we don't want to have to get to that situation like the example you were using earlier where now we're having to resolve a client's dispute. And um, you get to that place, boy, your options get pretty limited pretty damn quick, right? right. So, and I know you have a lot of experience um, in, actually, that's where we're going to go. 
I know you have a lot of experience in resolving client dispute. So let's kind of, let's get into that. Let's try to not get to that point with our act compliancy. But if we are, we are in a situation where we are having to resolve in the client dispute, what are some of the best practices? Sure. So we were talking about some of them earlier, right? We talked about the first meeting and the most important thing is to explain to the customer that you do want to help them, that you do want to make them happy. And there's an, uh, a notion in the risk uh, and insurance business that your first loss is your best loss. And I had somebody call me on the phone yesterday and say, well, what I, I saw that, you know, on a video in, on your, on your YouTube, what does that mean? Your first loss is your best loss. Well, that means that if you solve the problem right then and there, that it's going to be less expensive than letting it fester and letting them go to a lawyer or a regulator or the attorney general or whoever they want to go to and, and then try to resolve it. So I'm going to encourage everyone who's listening to fix the problems as you know about them. In the it, going back to the first meeting for a second, yeah, don't ignore that, them. Address them quickly. Sure. I'm sorry. I was saying, don't ignore them. We got to address them quickly. I mean, I find, yeah, you got to address find them. Sometimes you got to address you know, them. That, that situation will come in, and I'll admit, I'm like it too. You know, like I don't, I don't necessarily want to jump in front of a firing squad that quickly. So I have a tendency of maybe kind of pushing it back to it. But to your point, it's a time thing, like because you know, the longer it takes. The bigger this can't, the bigger the situation can be. But sorry, go ahead. That's okay. So yeah, I mean, have somebody at the dealership, and if you don't want to have somebody at the dealership do it, outsource it to a company like ours. Mm-hmm. Um, but the at the first meeting, it's important to to set the expectations. Let them know that you're going to listen to the story, that you're going to do your homework, you're going to talk to all of the people involved, that you're going to get to the bottom of it, and that at the second meeting, you're going to talk. You know, you're going to have some follow-up questions. You're going to ask some more questions and and try to start a trial closing them on what the solution is. In the second meeting, you say things like, well, I heard, here's what I heard you say. And you go back through the story again. And we didn't talk about it a few minutes ago, but I've had first meetings last a whole day before. We were talking about how long it takes it's go. I had a six or seven or eight hour meeting. I don't even remember with a client once. Holy cow! It was you know we had to break. We brought lunch in. We I mean it was the whole thing. It's, it started around ten, and I don't think I got home until seven or seven thirty that night. <laughs> it, 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 so it takes as long as it takes. But at the second meeting, it's important to to let the customer again know that you've talked to all the people involved and that you do know what happened. As necessary, you apologize. You say, "I'm I'm sorry this happened. Uh, I don't. This is not how we like to, uh, not how we like to be treated. We like to, you know, we like to treat people with courtesy and fairness, right? right? Or whatever your motto is. And we want to fix it. Now, I'm not sure I I have the solution to fix it, but I want to let you know that I did go back and I did talk to everyone, and this is not how we want to conduct ourselves. And we want to get you happy. So you can do some trial closes and say, well, let me ask you a question. If we traded you out of the vehicle and got you into a newer one, or if we got you into an older one, if we got you into a bigger one, if we got you into a smaller one, whatever the case is, right, each circumstance is different. 
sometimes the what ifs can be, well, what if, you know, how would you feel if I decided I was going to make a payment or two on your car uh, to make up for it? Because I don't want mm -hmm. you to be unhappy with us. Mm -hmm. You can get some feedback. Uh, that's important in the second meeting. And then the third meeting, and obviously I'm doing this, you know, in a very compressed way, but of course. In the, in the third meeting, I think it's really super important to offer that customer at least two options. So you say, okay, Mr. Customer, I want to make you happy. Here's two ideas. And the reason two ideas is important is you don't want the customer, the customer to feel like you're shoving a solution down their throat. Exactly. So you offer two options, you say, and even if they have different monetary value to them, right? You might say, I'm going to offer you a service and parts credit of X dollars, or I'm going to make three payments for you of Y dollars, even if there's a large differential there. It's okay. Let them, I've had customers take the lower number before for whatever the reason. For sure. Um, we just don't know necessarily what's happening in their lives that would, uh, that would tell us or give us a clue about which option they may or may not like. So it's, it's okay to have different valued solutions. I think it's important though, that you do give them options and then as necessary, then you have to negotiate and you have to, you know, if they say no, but I want X dollars, you have to, you know, you have to talk it through with them and it might require a fourth meeting. You know, I like this because it's, it's a clean format. It's a clean process. And it's actually a process we're already used to kind of doing, right? right? Right. We listen. We document. All right. We show options. And then if necessary, we negotiate. All right. Like this is something. But it's just I think what it is is that we have to identify when we when we have to do this. And, the time, and we do have to understand that this does take time. So that if you're not able to do it, then you need to be able to put someone in front of it. Um, look, I, I, th I think when it comes to resolving clients' dispute as a business, we understand the value behind resolving client client dispute because we know that it's a reputation thing and you know anyone can go on the internet and say whatever the heck they want um i actually remember for a long time this was years ago uh there was a client that was so upset opened up a website and like i think the url Ads. was like you know the dealership's name uh dot you know crooks or something it was something weird right like usually it sucks it sucks yeah oh that's what it was i actually think that's what it was dealerships named and it said it sucks well, that website organically ranked right side yeah. by side with that dealership for years Absolutely. and you know this is something that they could have gotten ahead of uh, way in advance so I, but i think as an industry we've gotten better at this and this was years ago when this happened but i think we've gotten better at this but the, the area i don't think that there's still a lot of room for uh for growth is in the area of resolving staff dispute and i'm i it's i'm, I'm not going to say i'm great at this either right i mean in this industry you know we're very much so suck it up buttercup uh check it out the check it out the door and uh shut the hell up and get back to work um right. that is that that is always kind of so so i i'm curious you know how do you identify you know, I'm thinking from a dealer principal's perspective, right? How do I know when my staff is just complaining or if they're identifying something legitimate that does have to be resolved and gone through a process? What advice would you give a, a dealer principal that kind of asking you, how do I identify that the differences there? Sure. It's a good question. I think the first and most important thing is that every dealership should have an employee guidebook. 
Um, some people call them handbooks, mm -hmm. but a, there's a differentiation between what a guidebook is and a handbook. I like the terminology of a guidebook better because the handbook has connotations that everything is contained therein. And if it's not written, then it's not true. And dealerships have so many policies and procedures that are written outside of that document. A guidebook guides you. A handbook seems more contained. Yes. So I think it's important to have a good guidebook. And I think in that guidebook, I think it's important that the dealer have a policy of an open door that any employee can come complain if they've complained through their chain of command and they're not getting satisfaction, that they can go right to the general manager or the dealer or the, whoever the designated person is. Mm -hmm. I think that's step number one in making sure you don't have employee problems. You, you know what's funny when you, as you're saying that? I remember uh, one of the first dealerships I ever worked at as a young salesperson, the um, uh, general manager there, which became a great mentor of mine actually, and really kind of pushed me you know, through, through my career, uh, was ex-military. Um, so he actually, in his book, had a process called running it up the flagpole. Now, I don't necessarily know the origins of that <laughs> from a military perspective, but that's what he would say. He would just, I remember, he it's like, he'd almost be in a meeting, someone would explain something, and he would just go, that needs to be run up the flagpole. And it was a defined process if there was ever kind of a, and, and this was more of a, a staff a staff dispute, or a staff concern that need to be run through this process. And um, I'm sure you probably have a different word for it, but I feel like every dealership needs to have like a, a, a run up the flagpole process. <laughs> what are your thoughts? Absolutely. I mean, all these things, the more policies and procedures you can put in place, I think the, the better off you are uh, to a certain point, of course, you don't want to go so far over that you can't be flexible with what you know how you need to run the business but i think there should be a designated person that employees can go to to talk about whatever the complaints are uh, certainly that person needs to be versed in 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 or have access to someone who has complete knowledge of all of the various laws that pertain to that and they're ever changing and ever moving um, every day, it's hard to keep up with uh, everything from, uh, you know, the genetic, you, you can't discriminate against someone because of their, their genetics to you, obviously some of the other obvious ones that we all know about. It's I mean, so vast. There's, there's uh, so much there. There's now. a lot of them. But I, I think the first, the first and most important part is to have that person. And if they don't know, have them call somebody who does know. They have to have the authority to do that, though. You know, I really like the ability of having a hotline, you know, and um, I, I definitely think you do need to have an individual, depending on the size of your organi organization, that can at least, you know, consume any type of dispute or concern and then decide, you know, kind of what level of concern or how far up the flagpole it needs to go, <laughs> you know, kind, right. of, kind of a process. And look, I know, look, dealers, managers, if you're out there listening, you know, to this and, and you know, or watching this and you're kind of, you know, shaking your head back and forth. like, nah, man, like this is, this is, I, 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 I don't need it. Look, here's really what we're talking about. Here's the byproduct of what we're talking about. The byproduct is happy staff. Okay. And I will tell you out of all the dealerships I've had the opportunity to visit, the ones that are most consistently profitable 
is a happy staff. And, you know, putting these processes in place, yes, protect you from a liability perspective. Yes, supports your reputation management. Um, Yes, it it satisfies the compliancy that you may have. Um, But really, at the end of the day, it creates that culture of happiness. It may be boring. It may be tedious for you to put these processes together. But it's a proactive approach to keeping your staff and your culture happy. I know we're getting towards the tail end of our time today, Tom, and this has been a lot of fun. I'm sure we could probably jam for a lot longer. But before I let you go, I think there's there, there, there's still a lot of conversation that can be had here. And, you know, for the dealers out there that are watching, listening, would like to kind of continue this conversation with you, right? W- what, what is the best way to connect with you? Sure. Uh, great. This is the shameless plug part, right? <laughs> yes. So uh, the company, my company name is Better Vantage Point. So B-E-T-T-E-R, bettervantagepoint.com is my website. Uh, and you can uh, get my contact information from there. And I'm also on LinkedIn under Tom Klein. So uh, those are the quickest ways uh, to get through to me. And uh, I'm certainly happy to answer any questions. Awesome. Hey, Tom, thank you so much for taking the time to jam with me today. This has been a blast. You have yourself an amazing day. Thanks, Jason. Thanks for uh, thanks for letting me come on the show. I appreciate it. It's been fun. Thanks for tuning in to the Strategy Mob Podcast with your host, Jason Harris. Don't want to miss new content? Be sure to sign up to be a mobster at strategymob.com to stay in the know. Remember to like, comment, and subscribe.